The reading for the day comes from Acts 2, 42 through 47, and 4, 32 through 35. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. The community of believers was one in heart and mind. None of them would say, this is mine, about any of their possessions, but held everything in common. The apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and an abundance of grace was at work among them all. There were no needy persons among them. Those who owned properties or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds from the sales and the and place them in the care and under the authority of the apostles. Then it was distributed to anyone who was in need. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. We are in our Lent series called Act Out, and it's us just contemplating for the whole season of Lent how Do we live out our faith? And not only as individuals, how do we live out our faith, but how do we live into our call to be the church? Last week, we spent some time talking about how church is a community. Church is action and life that we take together. It's not an organization or a building. It's a community of believers. And in order to understand how to do that well, how to really show up, how to really act out our call to be church. We're looking at the book of Acts. Acts (coughs) describes the community of believers and followers of Jesus who came right after Jesus' ministry on earth and ascension into heaven. They were trying to figure out how to be a radical manifestation of the kingdom of God how to take the teachings that they were absorbing, some of them apostles who had sat at the feet of Jesus, some of them new believers who were hearing for the first time all of Jesus' teachings. They heard about how we are called by God to imagine a new world, the kingdom, the way, but also about how we are to build it, to dream and to live simultaneously in this new way of being. Not the ways of the world, but the ways of God. This idea that we can both um, dream of a new reality and live it simultaneously, in the political realm, sometimes it's called prefigurative politics. It's the idea that even as we dream and fight and scheme and theorize, we also seek to live it out practically as much as possible in our local communities. And that's what we see among the first believers in Acts. If you saw the promo event for today's service, you saw a question that I asked, were the followers of Jesus proto-socialists? 
And I believe the answer is yes. They imagined a kingdom, which is about solidarity, right? No one is free until we're all free. But that means that liberation is when we are all free. Jesus taught a lot about debt and about releasing debt, about not charging interest, about um, freeing people from any captivity they had to financial debt. Jesus preached against hoarding, against taking more than you need in any given moment. He preached about God's provision, that there is enough for all. Jesus preached about justice for workers. And we hear this vision of the great reversal, which I like to talk about using my hands, that we think of the first shall be last and the last shall be first as like a flip, but it's really more like a side-to-side flip where the hierarchies, the stratification based on economics disappears as we are all made equal in worth in the world, in wealth in the world, just as we are equal in worth in the eyes and love of God. This is the great reversal, not um, just a mirror image of capitalism and exploitation as we know it now, but a new reality where all are made whole. Even Jesus' miracles were about this kind of material need we had. He offered universal health care <laughs> in the form of healing and miracles. He showed us the multiplying nature of sharing and generosity through the loaves and the fishes. That miracle, I don't think, had anything to do with physics. I don't think that Jesus was like bending the laws of reality here. It's a miracle that's true always. That if we all kick in our loaves and fishes, turns out there's well more than enough for all. We know that this is true across the world, that there is enough wealth for all to thrive, but that we have to think about thriving differently. And actually, it's only then that we'll truly live. The early believers preached this message. They dreamed of a world where economic hierarchy was demolished. The oppressors were overthrown. As Mary says in the Magnificat, the mighty cast down from their thrones, the lowly lifted up. Caesar's wealth redistributed among the poor. The early believers trusted in this, called for it, and preached it. No more wealthy, no more poor, because there was a new economy, one of sufficiency, where all have enough. And a new economy of generosity, where everything that we have is a gift to be shared and cherished and given away again. Not a commodity to be hoarded or wielded for power over others. But for these early believers, this was not just a lofty political theory. They lived it in a local, practical, everyday kind of way. They prefigured it as community. So when we see these passages that we just read in Acts, we get this mishmash of all different types of faithful practices. There's stuff that we recognize, like the sharing of meals and prayers and sitting and learning the teachings and relishing 
But all of that in that same breath is shared wealth. They held everything in common, it says. And if that isn't explicit enough for us, they really break it down. Anyone who had property sold it and gave it at the feet of the apostles, the leaders of the community, so that they could use the community to redistribute that wealth as any had need. Now, it wasn't uncommon in that culture to be generous, to be a patron, but there was always this power over, this memory of whose wealth that truly is. That disappeared when everybody put it at the feet of the community. And it was redistributed not for the honor or power or prestige of those who had given it, but for the benefit of all in the recognition that it was actually a gift to all from God in the first place. And you have, in this early Christian community, a very precise description of how each gave according to their ability and each received according to their need. Sounds correct to me. Sounds biblical to me. Also happens to sound a little like Marx. So yeah, proto-socialist. And some will quibble with that because the economy of that time wasn't capitalist yet. Socialism is a theory suited to our modern understanding of economics. But the truth, whatever you want to call it, is this. From the very beginning, believers whose lives were changed by the gospel message of freedom, liberation, and kingdom, believers who followed Jesus with their whole lives, hearts, minds and spirits, those who took seriously what Jesus said radically changed their whole lives. Not just by praying or building community and relationship, which was beautiful and also very central. Not just by worshiping and being a part of this underground movement of worshiping community, which was also essential. But also by radically rethinking the way that they lived the way that they interacted with money, the way that their needs were met, and the way they were called to share all they had in common. They divested from an economy of competition, scarcity, and domination, and invested in a practice of local communalism and redistribution, a community of gifts and abundance. This wasn't just about calling for an end of taxation to the poor, though they did that. Or an opposition to the military and mechanisms of empire and domination, though they did that too. On a small scale, in their own communities, they took their wealth, they pooled it, and distributed it, distributed it according to need. This is super intense. But it completely follows from the teachings of Jesus. In a sense, this is about trust. It's something that feels so right in theory, so powerful if we would all just kick in and do it, and so terrifying in reality, so impossible in our lives. And when I read this passage, I can't help but be brought back to one of the first humbling lessons in the extent of my own self-preservation that I got in college, where my theories 
about the world and politics and justice clashed in what was ultimately not that important of a way with my own personal self-interest and preservation. I was taking a political sociology class. It was from a professor I really loved and admired who taught me a lot about labor unions and the power of collective resistance. It was working with him that I ended up specializing in the history of social movements and seeing how my faith in Jesus overlapped with this radical history of resistance to powers of domination and oppression and dreaming of a world and a way that was different, just like the teachings of Jesus. I was this dude's research assistant. I was so invested in the way that he was teaching me. And in one class, we were studying political power. In particular, we focused on collectivism, the ways that unions were busted, the ways that the powers of domination came to divide and conquer, the ways that class and race were used to keep the masses apart from one another, fighting with one another, while the few dominated over the many. Now, when we got to the end of the semester, our professor gave us an option for the final, which would be a pretty large portion of our grade. We could hold a group oral final together where we would discuss the material, demonstrate our understanding, and collectively get assigned one grade together. Or we could take a timed individual written final and be graded separately. This was a no-brainer for me because I knew this material, I was a writer, I'm really good at tests, and I uh, was ha have an individual approach to this. My grades were important. I wasn't going to let my GPA suffer because somebody else didn't test well. I would ace that test. And during the debate about how we were to be graded, I fought hard for that individual test, for that blue book exam that I knew I could knock out. And afterward, I talked to my professor, and I could tell he was so disappointed in me. Had I learned nothing? It was a very Peter and Jesus moment where the stakes were just almost meaningless. But I felt awful. Because the whole point of that class was about collective power, about kicking in together and trusting that actually we're all better off when we do. I mean, sure, I might take a hit. My grade might go down a little bit. But on the whole, the class's grade would go up. And honestly, how fair was it that my grade would have been better? I grew up in a household where both my parents had master's degrees, and each of them had a degree in education. I happen to have a brain that kind of works fast on the spot, that can just speak or write endlessly on prompt, and that's not something that I really worked that hard for. It's something that I was born with. I happen to be good at tests, something that I actually was trained to do by an education system that privileged me. A lot of my classmates, on the other hand, were mostly first-generation college students. They had tons of skills and understanding that just weren't as suited to the classroom. And a lot of them had extreme test anxiety, as so many of us do. 
They might know the material as well as me, but by luck and privilege, my grade would have been better. And I knew that wasn't fair. And in fact, I had studied how testing in education is racist and classist. And in any political debate, I would have railed against that. But when it came to my own GPA, suddenly I was a staunch individualist. Suddenly I was arguing for my own benefit, knowingly at the expense of others, in the back of my mind if I was truly honest with myself. It was a really humbling moment, knowing that when my values were put to the test in this own small, limited, but important way, I wasn't willing to live out my own values because I was still so bought into a competitive individualist drive to cover my own back rather than realizing that our professor probably would have graded us all pretty generously if we had pooled our knowledge, that I could have contributed to the well-being of my classmates who I did actually care about. And so I threw my classmates under the bus for what? At best, probably the difference between an A and an A minus. One of the difficulties of the kingdom, we have to believe in it for the whole, for the big picture, for the future dream, for the revolution, for when Jesus comes back. And we have to live into it here and now. It's not only about dismantling the structures of power and privilege that are external to us. It's about creating systems that level privilege, that have us throw in together, that collectively pool our resources knowing that we will be better off together, here, now, locally, practically, with everything we have. The promise of the kingdom is that we will be better off if we, like the disciples, are of one heart and mind, that we kick in together and trust that on the whole, more of us will have more fishes and loaves than we did before. And that those of us who have a little less had it to spare anyway. It requires trust and it requires sacrifice. It requires a reorientation of our survival instinct from individual to collective. From saying, I've got to get enough, to we have enough if only we throw in together. This is the way of life. We talk at Zao, we want to be among the living. The way of life, the way of Jesus is toward life and against the mechanisms of death. And Jesus taught us that the way of death is scarcity. The way of death is broken relationship. The way of death is hoarding and self over others. But the way of life is abundance and generosity. It is trust in one another. It is building something together that no one of us could build on our own, but is more than the sum of its parts. It's kicking in and reaping the benefits. The description of this process in the book of Acts, where all are throwing in together, people are selling what they have and putting it in the pool, and everyone's getting what they need, and it's beautiful and powerful and holy, 
This description of life, a new way of being fully alive, immersed in community, living the love of God with one another, it's followed by a very striking allegory about the ways of death. In Acts chapter 5, we get this story. It says, However, a man named Ananias, along with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he withheld some of the proceeds from the sale. He brought the rest and placed it in the care and under the authority of the apostles. Peter asked, Ananias, how is it that Satan has influenced you to lie to the Holy Spirit by withholding some of the proceeds from the sale of your land? Wasn't that property yours to keep? After you sold it, wasn't the money yours to do with whatever you wanted? What made you think of such a thing? You haven't lied to other people, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he dropped dead. Everyone heard this conversation, was terrified. Some young men stood up, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. Now this too is a very intense story. (laughs) But it's an allegory about the ways of life versus the ways of death. The ways of life being generosity and communalism, trust in one another. The ways of death being hoarding and scarcity. That even the half-hearted giving of Ananias and Sapphira can harm the soul, can cause death within the spirit. After that description, that the community were of one mind and one heart, were pouring in together, we see what happens to this couple, this family who has kind of one foot in and one foot out reserves a part just for themselves, doesn't have full trust in the community, is giving, but is holding on in their heart to the ways of the world, to the backup plan, to the I'm going to keep what's mine just in case. They were withholding because they didn't truly trust that they would be provided for. Now I want to be clear about something. I do not believe that God strikes people dead, period. I definitely don't believe that God strikes us dead for imperfect giving. I believe that God meets us where we are, and that half-hearted giving is better than no giving. But this story is about how fundamental this message is to following Jesus. The early believers took this so seriously. This was a matter of life and death of the Spirit. This was central to the gospel. Do you trust enough to kick in? Not just with your theories or your words, but with your money, with your possessions, with your future. So how do we live this now? Especially how do we work towards this if this is a life-encompassing call? There are some communities that live this way communal housing where any money earned outside of the community is put into a central bank account. But that's not really an option for most of us for a lot of reasons. How do we start to embody this in a modern world 
that, like the world of the apostles, isn't suited for it. How do we prefigure? How do we live into these values that we shout about in the streets? Well, the church is one of the ways. Church itself is a practice in anti-capitalism. It's a practice of pooling resources. Now, I have to acknowledge here that not all churches are this way. Some churches are capitalist venues where the very few get wealthy off of the coerced generosity of the poor. That's the twisting of the devil, taking something beautiful and turning it into the worst possible, most cruel, most harmful version of itself. That's not the church being the church. That's the church being warped by the world. It's also the nightmare fear of socialism cast by the right, that true generosity and sharing isn't possible because some people will just take it and take it. But Jesus has cast that vision to say that we do pool in together, that the loaves and fishes are ours and also God's and also more than enough. And in reality with churches, though we have been hurt in high-profile ways by those churches that abuse this message to harm people, in reality, that's just not how it usually plays out. Churches are like nonprofit organizations. Everything is paid for by donors. And people who work for churches generally would be paid a lot more if they worked in for-profit institutions, but they take a pay cut because they feel like what they're doing changes the world. Most churches, including Zao, is run at, at an extraordinary level by volunteer power. And if you want to hear about all of the ways that people pitch in with their labor, head back to last week's sermon and hear the list of all of the ways that people are kicking in their efforts. But when we give money, we are contributing resources to something that is bigger than the sum of its parts. When each of you gives money, you are contributing to a pool that makes possible something that none of you could make possible individually. And that's for sure keeping the lights on, like these literal, these literal lights. This, this light, gift. Gift by the community. Uh-oh, <laughs> gift by the community I'm maybe abusing right now. There we go. But the actual lights, yes, we want to keep those on. But it's so much more than that. Our justice ministries are run on money given by you all. Our technology, the camera that I'm speaking into right now, the software that brings this into your home, paid for by gifts that all of you chipped in on. And this whole enterprise itself exists because people kicked in and said, we'll be better off if we pool our meager resources and bring together enough to create something even bigger than any of our single gifts could have made by itself. Some people are able to give in the thousands, and some people are able to give in the tens, and together we build a sustainable community. Church is not a fee for service. You're not buying church. You're being church. 
You're creating it together, and it takes money. This community would not exist and will not exist without those gifts. Every penny that Zhao has ever received, has ever spent, has ever given away to someone else, was first gifted by believers, by community members, by people who believed, if nothing else, in this project, in the values of this community. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I realized that a lot of us don't actually know how critical money is to Zhao or where it comes from. I was having a conversation with one of our really dedicated leaders, and I asked about giving. I said, you know, what, what do you think is important when we have a conversation about how and why to give financially to this project? And this person said, or shared, basically an assumption that we were getting a significant amount of money from somewhere else. In particular, that like I, as a full-time salaried worker, was being like paid for, funded by someone else, specifically the denomination. And I said, oh no, we, we fundraise my salary. And this leader said, well, what if we don't get enough? And I said, then I get fired. <laughs> and this leader was like, well, that's a really crappy deal. <laughs> and it made me laugh because honestly, it's not. It's not a crappy deal. It's an amazing deal. I moved my whole life from Chicago for this call to ministry by God. I uprooted everything I had. I got into major debt going into seminary. I prepared my heart and prayed and dreamed because I was called to come to Milwaukee and to put down roots and to put my whole life in the hands of a community that didn't exist yet. I felt called to give my life to this project. And I trusted that the community would emerge around me and give back enough so that I also could live with a reasonable wage and a roof over my head and the financial safety that we fight for for all workers. I took that risk to trust in you all. And we built this church together. So far, you all have stepped up about 75% of the way in terms of making our current ministry financially sustainable. Because not only was it your generosity, it was the generosity of other churches. I couldn't come here and work full-time, honestly, every waking moment of my life, without some financial support before you all existed to chip in. And because of that, there are communities that, that know that and anticipate that and say, hey, we, though we already exist, we are going to pour our resources into future communities. We trust that the good news of the kingdom is so powerful that we need new and different ways to spread that beautiful message. They poured in. They kicked in. They didn't even know. They didn't know you guys. They didn't know me. They didn't know what that was going to be. Probably some of them are a little surprised. <laughs> but the churches together kicked in money. And they gave it to the annual conference, which is kind of the centralized body of the United Methodist Church. 
they gave that money to the conference and said, redistribute it where it's needed. And so we did actually get a lot of money for a while from the conference. My whole salary at the beginning. Additionally, before I even moved to Wisconsin, I gathered a bunch of people in Chicago and I told them of the dream that God had given me. And they, in their own faith, pitched in and gave us a seed of about $10,000 so that we could start to do ministry. And that is how Zao was funded for the first year. Now, the money from the conference, which again, is just a fancy way of saying money from a lot of gifts that have been pooled together, it continued, but it diminished every year in the trust that you all would emerge and give and thrive and that we could build something beyond, not only sustainable for ourselves, but that someday we could be one of those churches. We could be one of those gift givers that makes possible the next Zao, the next church led by a generation we haven't even met yet, but that we trust in, believe in, and invest in because we know that God will make those gifts multiply. And so like Acts, people all over the place have taken their wealth and given it to the church, and used the church to distribute it where there was need, including here at Zao. So year by year, that money has diminished as we are able to fund ourselves. This year, in 2021, that pool of money that they are giving to us is $25,000, which, believe it or not, is by far the smallest amount we've ever gotten, and with the hope that next year we won't get any dollars at all, that we will be fully self-sustaining and working towards a time when we can actually give back to that pool to start other new churches. That means that we need to raise $25,000 more this year than we have in the previous years so that we can survive next year when we don't have that additional help. Every week during the giving portion of the sermon, this is why we ask you, if this is your home, to give financially. Yes, it is to keep the lights on, but it's also to make sure that you have pastors. When I was having this conversation with this leader, they said, I literally had, I literally had no idea that you were paid by offering. I thought you were the safe part. And I laughed, and I said, no, I'm the expensive part. We run a pretty tight ship around here. <laughs> you could call it a tight ship. You could call it a ragtag crew. You could call it scrappy. But compared to other churches of our size in terms of how many people are worshiping, our budget is low. But it is a lot. It adds up to have a full-time staff member with benefits like health care and retirement. And again, those things that we fight for for all workers. It costs a lot to have a worship pastor like Cameron, though we are very lucky because he gives three-quarter to full-time work on a meager quarter-time salary because he really believes in this project. We are the most expensive part. And that's considering the tens of thousands of dollars that we've had to spend on equipment and having a roof over our heads. So the majority of the budget is the human, um, 
effort and labor that makes this place possible. To be perfectly transparent, I am full-time. This does take all my time. I know that some folks wonder if pastors only work on Sundays or with worship, but this is a very full-time job. And last year, uh, in 2020, my salary was the conference minimum for someone of my credentials, which is about $38,000 plus a really generous housing allowance, which means that they help subsidize my rent. I also get health insurance and benefits and all of that adds up. And if we don't raise all of that, eventually I'm out of a job and I have to go work somewhere else, which makes running and leading Zhao a lot harder, if not impossible. Now, given all of the generosity that this community pours into us, Cameron and I give back, not only of our time um, and working in ways that we would not work for other jobs, but also financially. We give a few hundred dollars back a month as a practice of giving. And in addition, we've spent thousands of dollars over the years <laughs> with purchases that we just don't reimburse, which is honestly not a good practice, but you know, we're working on it. This is why we have a giving campaign, because we actually won't be a church anymore if we can't be financially self-sustaining. But the good news is, we can. We can be financially self-sustaining. And I know that that feels far away, but we're actually getting pretty close. And we, that gap of $25,000, we made up even more of that last year. So our giving has been going up as we've been growing, as people have been finding their generosity, as people have been putting their trust and faith into this community. I know it may not feel like you individually have a lot to give, but this is a loaves and fishes situation, y'all. I am supremely confident that there is enough between us, not only to sustain us, but to grow Zhao so that we can have even more to pour into each other and our community. If you're feeling like you don't have much to give, know that your contribution adds up, and it is the act of giving that enacts that miracle of multiplication. And if you suspect that you have more to give than the average Zhao member, consider that when you reflect and pray about how you want to contribute. Because we do need to give according to our ability so that we can receive according to our needs. The goals of the giving campaign for this season are to get new first-time givers to sign up as recurring givers and to have recurring givers extend their gift, become more generous and increase their, their pledge. We want 30 people to do that, and I think that we can. I know that we can. Additionally, over the course of this year, we have to raise an, uh, an increase of $25,000 above what we already have been getting so that we can survive without that conference support. And when we feel like this is overwhelming, we remember our roots, where we come from, these apostles and the followers who gave it all as well as where we are going. The dream of that kingdom, which is not only big and systemic, but interpersonal and communal and local. The kingdom we fight for in the streets, built into reality here 
and now. We think about the gifts that Zhao has created in our lives, the way that Zhao has showed up at Pride Fest, the way that Zhao has been in the streets for Black Lives Matter, the depot and this collective of giving and multiplicity that makes movements possible. We remember the ways that we worship and how that has fed our lives. We think about the way that Zhao is amplifying a message of inclusion in the church, an affirmation of God's children. We think about the justice in the streets that the church can bring when we be Zhao and church together. And we dream about how much more we can do as we grow, as we gather back in person, as we expand our online community, as we trust that pitching in a little will give us a lot. I'd like to end with a video that one of our community members shared in the squad page this past week. Um, Taylor is uh, a member of this community who was participating in uh, a TikTok event of describing or showing one's own deconstruction process. And Taylor is somebody who has given financially and sacrificially to this community. But I saw Taylor honoring the ways that you all have been a huge part of her process of faith and deconstruction. And it gave me hope that Taylor feels like she has received more back from this community, even then she has generously given in and hoped that we could all benefit by being a part of these, these incredible journeys we're all on. So if you'll join me in watching Taylor's video. Challenge, show yourself before and after religious deconstruction. Thank you for the gift of your witness and for the many generous gifts that you've given to the Zhao community. And Zhao community, thank you for being a part of her journey and process. Let us relish in the abundance we have here from the gifts that we've given so far. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, you have promised that there is more than enough let us trust in your promise, give what we have, and marvel at what we receive. Amen.